0: Hey, it's Mark. This week's series of mini episodes taped live at the Health Conference in Vegas continues with digital editor Jack O'Brien.
1: Welcome to the MM MMM podcast. My name is Jack O'Brien. I'm the digital editor of MM MMM, coming to you from the Health Conference in lovely Las Vegas. My guest today is Dr. Cherise Sparks of Applied VR. Doctor, how are you doing?
0: I'm doing well, Jack. Thank you so much for having me.
1: Thank you for being on the show. We really appreciate it. Pleasure to be here. I guess if we could start anywhere, and we've been asking most of our guests this, what has the conference been like for you? What are some of the trends and themes that you're paying attention to? Wow. The biggest one is just the size
0: of this conference. And I was very fortunate to be able to give a talk yesterday. On one of the uh, main stages um, before the conference, and the results and the feedback from that have been fabulous. And I gave a talk on healthcare disparities uh, and pain in America, and just to hear people's response to that talk has been really um, uplifting uh, for me. So people are thinking about what we need to be doing in this area, and that made me, that just lifted me
1: um, so much. And when you talk about what we have to be doing as it relates to disparities, and I think that we've even had some conversations today with other podcast guests about um, what those are, what what are the action points, what are the solutions that people need to be looking into and enacting to make some significant change?
0: I think one of the very fundamental ones is looking in the mirror. What are your attitudes? What do you know about disparities? And what are you willing to do? And, um, you know, in my talk yesterday, I I talked about some of the hard things being a physician. Are you willing to make different buying decisions about, for me, as an orthopedic surgeon, about the implants that you use? Is the company that you buy those implants for, are they doing the things that align with your goals in trying to close the gap on disparities? But also, are you doing all you can as a person to not be not racist, but to be an anti-racist and so, those were some of the themes that I talked about yesterday.
1: When you look across the board in the healthcare sector, how much you know, I, I, I struggle to say quantify it. But when you look at people actually taking those steps to be anti-racist, to make protocols or processes that say this is where we stand and these, this is how we're going to go about it, is it a lot? Is it a little? Is there room for improvement? I'm just curious what you make of the state of those actions.
0: I think there's room for improvement, but I think there's also room for more visibility to those that are making or having that impact. Um, There are some people that are really out there and making noise like they're instilling this in in their day-to-day and we're not really holding them accountable so we don't know what work is actually being done. So I think bringing visibility is also important and being accountable is going to be important. So developing some sort of scorecard so people know who's in, who's out will be really helpful. But I do think just the, you know, the past three years, I'm sorry it took the murder of George Floyd to sort of wake people up, so to speak, because this is a 400-year-old problem. And, uh, but I, I really believe the accountability is the thing that we need to focus on more. So, highlighting the good work, but also calling out Sort of the on the fringe. I'm going to call it fake work, you know? Mm-hmm. So they say they're doing something, but they're really not doing anything.
1: With our last guest, uh, April Mims, we had discussed the idea that there were all these pledges that were made back in the summer, especially of 2020, and, you know, many of them are still on the books because they've been pledged, but the action necessarily hasn't followed up. I'm curious just what your thoughts are on that, and you talked about the accountability and the measurement aspect. I'm curious what you think a measurement system kind of looks like in that way, like what areas you look at and say that's where they're succeeding, maybe that's where they're falling by the wayside.
0: Yeah, I think we should go back to the same people that highlighted the pledge and go so what did you do with the pledge mm-hmm. demonstrate it to me what is it where is it tangibly visible in communities of color and so i think that that's the easiest thing they were willing to step up and be out in the front in 2019 and 2020, it's 2022 now. Why are we not waving the same flags and the same banners to say, here's what we have done? There's nobody that I know, the big companies that came out and said, we're gonna have you know, 20 million or $100 million going toward diversity. None of them are showing, here's my scorecard. Here are the things that we're doing. So the same organizations that highlighted them, let's go back and ask them to ask what they've done.
1: I'm curious you talk about some of the larger organizations and we're always interested in what everyone's doing on this front because it is so top of mind it is so important. What has Applied VR been doing on that front to be able to make that change meaningful? Because obviously it's a, a passion of yours yeah. and, a, and a very noble one at that.
0: Well, I think what Applied VR is very good at is asking what can we do, but not only asking the question, but putting their words where their hearts are because we are an empathetic company. And so I think we are actively approaching our hiring practices. We look at the way that we're doing our clinical research. Our first clinical trial, our pivotal trial to get our FDA authorization, wasn't a very diverse trial at all. And we fully admit that. And what we've done is we've invested in a trial that's five, six times larger and made diversity and including all demographics in that uh, study population a priority. And so we structured our clinical protocol to accept that, but we also have defined endpoints that are going to highlight that, or say, hey, our, our solution doesn't work here, or our solution does work here, but we're at least asking the question across all of those demographics.
1: When you look across the industry and you talk about the topic of clinical diversity, another thing that's popped up so much in our conversations today, and I know it's meaningful for our audience because they represent these biotech and pharma companies that want to, you know, fix these long-standing issues. Is that you know being met are companies stepping up to that or are they still not fully meeting the the moment in terms of diversifying their clinical trials
0: yeah you know clinical trials are not cheap they're really expensive to run and so the easiest thing to do is to go back where you know people know how to do it but that doesn't always represent all of the patients that you're serving and so i think one of the biggest things is we have to look at not only inviting Uh, participants of color to come into clinical trials, but we need to invite principal investigators, the clinicians of color to come in and do clinical research. I think industry has a great opportunity because there needs to be some education. This is not a topic that is taught in medical school or even residency sometime. How do you run a clinical trial? What does that look like in an institution? And now in the technology market, since we're doing all kinds of decentralized trials, so we're not in big academic centers, the trial participants are coming from kind of in the wild, so just wherever you are. If you have access to a computer, you can join a clinical trial. But you need somebody that can manage that. You need somebody that can ask the right clinical question and set up the protocol to deliver that answer in a statistically and scientific way. And I think there needs to be more education from industry about how do we conduct these trials and we need to reach out to communities that are not our typical go-to populations and if even if we do a mentor kind of program where if you want to go back to the same sites, but invite someone to sponsor a PI of color to come in and run a clinical trial where they have not run them before. So I do think in this entrepreneurial um, environment, we can think about different ways to invite others in without totally letting go of what you know but let's just add some more people to the party.
1: Yeah, it sounds like a very inclusive way of approaching the issue. Mm-hmm. And I guess I'm really curious. Uh, it sounds like it's an opportunity for those in our audience, which are the medical marketers, to say, hey, we represent the you know, large pharma and biotech brands of the world. They should be out there promoting this message in education and awareness campaigns, if, if I'm understanding you correctly.
0: Yeah. But like I said, it's not, it's not inexpensive to run a clinical trial. So I think that's the hesitation, is there's not a lot of experimentation because you want to get it right the first time because you don't want to do it again. And we also have to think about those that we're impacting in those clinical trials uh, because patients are, we're asking them to trust us again if we're going to communities of color again, to trust us in clinical trials. And so you want to put your best foot forward. But I think we need to understand that that doesn't have to be a total shift of everything that you know, that you can bring people along to help in the process. So it's the the C1, B1, teach one or teach one, C1, B1 in that whole ecosystem that as we teach, just as we learn to be physicians, as we learn to be scientists, we can learn to produce clinical trials that are inclusive of others. But the resource that it's going to take, because it's going to take a little bit of extra effort to include people that haven't been included before, because running a clinical trial, too, is all about efficiency. Um, as well. And so either we do some education outside of the trial environment or we structure trials differently so that we can teach within that framework.
1: And are you optimistic that the industry can make that sort of change happen? I mean, I, I know that you're describing it as, as kind of incremental, but you say it's also a shift in the way it's been done for decades at this point.
0: Well, Jack, I'm just going to be really blunt and honest here. Industry is going to have to. Mm-hmm. The government is going to make you. Um, diversify your clinical trials. To, in order to get regulatory clearances now, you'll have to have a data set that goes across all the patients you wish to serve. Um, to, to be uh, get into a benefit category for reimbursement, the data that you present to CMS has to be from all different categories of people, everybody that you say your device is there to serve. So if we don't, start doing, if we don't start thinking about it differently now, um, I hate to say it, the bottom dollar will be affected because you won't be able to get any approvals that you had before.
1: I think that's the message that resonates with any and all of our, our leaders, just because that's obviously a, a consideration they have to have in mind.
0: I know, but that one hurts me at the heart. Yeah. Why does it have to be in the pocketbook to drive change? Why can't we see that the good of the people, that everybody in healthcare, what you want more than in anything is to have a positive impact on the lives of patients. So I know that the real world is it takes money to do all that but let's think about it differently and offer solutions that, that, although impacted by money, are driven by the impact to the patient. Mm-hmm.
1: You, you've described the need for the industry to be able to make those changes that relates to diverse, diversifying clinical trials. I'm wondering if there's any other sorts of um, diversification. We had just had the conversation about DE&I and, and all the tenants that are being put into place all across not only the healthcare sector, but the broader economy. I'm just curious if there's any other sorts of principles that you would like to see adopted, maybe in the sort of, same sort of way where you talk about it's to the benefit of the patient, not necessarily just to the benefit of the bottom line. Well,
0: I mean, the overall, we know that diversity enhances the quality of your business enhances the profitability of your business. So I think for me it, it's just, it's just the right thing to do. And so why are we not doing it? Um, and but to drive effective treatments for all, you have to understand how those treatments impact all, if that's what you're going to say. And if you don't invite everybody to the party, how will you know? What questions do you know to ask? You don't know those questions to ask. Um, and so I, th- I think we have to be really cognizant that today is so different than it was before because there's so much additional information out there. Patients are smarter than we've ever known before. So they're even asking different questions than they've asked before. But um Adding diversity as a tenet of what you do seems to me to not be the next goal that you seek. It should become the fabric of the DNA of who you are if you're in healthcare.
1: I am curious your thoughts because you just talked about patient advocacy and patients being probably more empowered than they've ever been before just because of all the information that they have at their fingertips. And I know in talking about black pain as it relates to you know challenges and mistrust with the healthcare community, that's an outstanding issue with physicians not fully understanding black patients and you know, even misdiagnosing black pain just because they don't have a full understanding of the communities that they're working with. I'm, cu- I'm just curious if there's anything that you would say to the patients who might be listening in terms of saying, hey, you have to advocate for yourself in the the doctor's office because they may not be fully understanding you in the proper ways.
0: Yeah. Well, like I said, I had the privilege of giving a talk here yesterday. And one of the points that I made was in 2016, the University of Virginia did a study around attitudes and beliefs about people of color and how they interact with the healthcare system. And one of those is being pain. And 22% of the white residents and medical students that were uh, queried thought that the uh, sensitivities uh, and nerve endings of black people were different than white people. And that was not like 1899. That was in 2016. So, yes, you should advocate for yourself as a black person, but, man, the the cards are kind of stacked against you uh, as soon as you walk in. Um, On a very personal level, I was admitted to the hospital two and a half years ago, and I'm a physician, and I almost died because they didn't want to take care of me. They didn't believe that I was in the pain that I was in, and I had the complaints that I had. And I'm a physician and can tell them exactly what was going on. So um, this is an attitude shift. This is the... How do I say it? This is the white medicine, white privilege, recognizing that this is an issue. This is not about black people going in there and trying to solve this problem. This is about white people recognizing that is a problem and addressing it as a problem. And that is the only way that will get solved.
1: Doctor, I've really appreciated having you on the show and being able to speak to these very powerful and at, at times very challenging points that relate to our healthcare system. I guess as we go into the new year and people look to the future, you know, we're we're exiting the emergency COVID phase, but there're still so many challenges facing the industry. I guess I'm really just kind of curious what you're keeping an eye on and maybe what some of our listeners should be paying attention to as they go forward in terms of the challenges and maybe opportunities ahead.
0: One of the big things I want to say is change can start with one person. So if you have an idea or if you are in a position to raise your voice about inequality, do it. Look to your right, look to your left. Who are you associating with and what are you advocating for? The power can come from each of us. And so the things I'm keeping my eye on are, number one, opportunities to have a A chance to have a conversation with you because maybe I've said something today that will help somebody else say something tomorrow. Um, I am also looking at how I make decisions in my everyday life. So, the companies I do business with, what does their leadership look like? What are their values? How am I spending my money? Because, yeah, sad to say, (laughs) the pocketbook, if you hit people in the pocketbook in the right place, that will happen. And also, I would ask people of color to come together to raise their voices together. We see what can happen when we do it, but we're doing it in fits and starts. We have to do it in a sustained way. We don't need to raise to yell, but we do need to elevate our voices. And so I would ask wherever you can be involved, get involved, even if it's a small thing. You don't have to go out and hold the world on your shoulders, but you can you can call out bad behavior. That that's one thing. And and you can lift up good behavior. So you can frequent folks that have the values of closing the gaps of disparities and then you can say, "Hey, you guys need to do a little bit better job. I'm not coming back here for for now." But attitudes within the healthcare system, I think until we get rules or even identification from ethics boards, that the behavior that is seen gets corrected, number one, gets called out, and, and there is a consequence for continuing that behavior, that is where I think we fall short right now.
1: Dr. Sparks, again, I really appreciate all the insights that you've offered here today and obviously a very powerful closing message from you and hopefully one that our audience really takes to heart.
0: Thank you so much. What a privilege to be here. I've enjoyed it so much.
1: Excellent. Thank you so much. And we hope to have you on again. Thank you.
0: If you like this episode, please give it a thumbs up. Better yet, subscribe on your podcasting platform of choice and help others discover the show. The MMM Podcast is produced by Bill Fitzpatrick, Deborah Stahl, Bradley Weems, and Gordon Faylor. Our theme music is by Sizi M. Soan. We're out every week. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.